Welcome to another episode of Hear Her Sports, a female athlete podcast for all things, well, female athlete. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. Each episode shares a conversation I've had with an absolutely amazing female athlete or woman in sport. We always cover so much ground from training, nutrition, and psychology to science, research, mental health, and coaching. Joining me today is Dr. Kate Ackerman, who works collaboratively with experts all over the world advocating for the health, well-being, and performance needs of female athletes. In 2013, Kate founded the Female Athlete Conference, now the preeminent gathering of athletes, coaches, physicians, nurses, psychologists, research, dietitians, sports media, physical therapists, and anyone else committed to working in the field of female athletes. You can go to, and there's more information about that in our conversation and in the show notes. Only a few years ago, Kate was asked to help design and launch the new Wusai Human Performance Alliance, a $220 million initiative to improve health and performance globally. She now directs the Wusai Female Athlete Program, Boston Children's Hospital, and as a member of the National Leadership Council for the Wusai Human Performance Alliance, she leads the alliance's focus on scientific advancements for women. Kate is also a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, She earned her B.A. from Cornell, her M.D. from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, her M.P.H. from the Harvard School of Public Health, and completed her residency in internal medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on female athlete health and the various aspects of relative energy deficiency in sport, or RED-S, something that often comes up in conversation here on the podcast. Kate was also an elite athlete. She represented the U.S. as a lightweight rower at the World Championships, won multiple national championship titles, and still competes as a master's athlete. She also is currently the chair of the U.S. Rowing Medical Committee and a member of the World Rowing Medical Commission. Kate and I talk about a lot of that, as well as menopause. I love that she mentions, quote, the laundry list of symptoms, coming back to sport after pregnancy, and power-to-weight ratio. I really appreciate that Kate went through some of the details about cycling up and down in weight for performance and that she stressed this is the kind of thing only elite athletes should be thinking about and definitely it's not something for teenagers. Lots of fascinating stuff and an excellent follow-up to last week's episode with Christine Yu, the author of Up to Speed, which I hope all of you have ordered on our bookshop page at hearhersports.com books. Well, onward, let's get to it. I'm super excited you're here. Hello. Thank you, Kate, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, I have to admit that I'm a little bit overwhelmed by all that you do, and I have so many questions. And I've been trying to think why I'm so overwhelmed. And I think it's because, you know, like everything you do is so intertwined with, you know, certainly with itself, but all the things that I'm interested in. So it's just, it's like this big web. So I want to try to start simply and just get a sense of like everything that you do and how your days work. Like, what are your days like? What are your weeks like with everything that you're doing? Well, you probably get this from a lot of people, but every day is different. Right. Uh, The the weeks are different depending on what the focus is overall, you know, that week, what, what kind of fires I need to put out, what's exciting and on the calendar. But typically, I see patients two to three days a week, and I do research two or three days a week. So already it's like 50-50, but it may shift depending on the week. Um, I do do a lot of female athlete advocacy work. I'm very involved with our female athlete program at Boston Children's and with the WUSAI Human Performance Alliance, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yes. And I'm a the head team physician for U.S. Rowing. I do some work with the International Olympic Committee, helping with relative energy deficiency in sport, education, and research. And then I also work with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee with their Women's Health Task Force. So it really depends on the week. I'm all over the place. I do a lot of traveling, but it's been fun. And like you said, I do try to make it intertwined. So maybe I'm just a spider and it's all one big web. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, you touched on a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. So First, I'm interested that you are still seeing patients. I wasn't sure how how often you were seeing patients. So how does that process work? I mean, how do pe- patients connect with you? And, you know, like, what kind of female athletes are you seeing? 
So it's funny, we work at Boston Children's, but I see patients of all ages. And actually, my oldest patient right now is an 84-year-old man who I've been seeing for years since my endocrine fellowship. So we make exceptions, uh, but we do see women across the lifespan in sports medicine at Boston Children's. And people can get a hold of me via that website through my scheduler. And we have other members of our female athlete program. So we have other physicians, we have sports psychologists, we have social workers, we have a fantastic female athlete program physician assistant, who's really my lifeline along with my scheduler. And we have a female athlete program fellow. So we're training other physicians to come into the fold. And we have a group of sports dietitians who are excellent as well. Let's go to the female athlete program then. I'm so fascinated by that. And, you know, you've mentioned in other podcasts and other writing that, you know, you really are interested in this interdisciplinary care. So can you describe more about the female athlete program and how does that actually work if you come in as a patient? Sure. So we launched it in 2013. There really, in my mind, was a need to be treating the whole patient and not just focusing on one joint or one injury, but seeing the patterns and sort of the risk profile of different athletes. And I felt that the female athlete was not getting looked at in the right way. So I have this sort of patient, I think, in my head when people ask me this question. So this was a young woman who was a college student. She was a runner. She'd had an eating disorder. She was having some GI issues and feeling depressed after her stress fracture. And she was seeing all different people. She'd had all these different providers. So she was seeing somebody in adolescent medicine around her eating disorder. She had another primary care doctor. She had a sports physician taking care of her stress fracture. She was going to a GI specialist about her constipation. She was seeing uh, a psychologist in a separate practice about her depression. And so on and on. I'm getting exhausted just listening to that. Exactly. And so here's somebody who's going all over the city, visiting all these different people, and nobody was bringing it all together. And really the issue was she was a female athlete. And during high school, there was this pressure to be thinner. She was a runner. She developed an eating disorder. And this got her into some bad habits. It increased her anxiety. And then she started getting a series of stress fractures. Oh, I forgot to mention she also had a GYN because she lost her menstrual cycle in the process. So in my mind, this all is connected. And we now know that it's connected with relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS. And that was very much why I did the extra medical training and decided to become an internist, become a sports medicine specialist and an endocrinologist to really bring that all together. So I was lucky that my orthopedic boss at Boston Children's understood that vision and gave me the liberty really to build this program, realizing that absolutely this does intertwine and these athletes should be asked the right questions on day one when they present so that we can get them the right specialists and everybody's communicating. I mean, when I was preparing to talk to you, I mean, some of the thoughts that came up for me personally was, you know, I'm very reluctant to go to see doctors because I get into that thing that you're talking about with your patient where, you know, I go to the first person and, you know, they don't really understand. So they send me to somebody else or I get really weird information. And then just coincidentally, I saw recently on Facebook, a group discussion about iron deficiency and low ferritin levels in the discussion just totally showed that we're still this lack of understanding about female athletes and, you know, like what the numbers meant for them specifically. So the female athlete program sounds very attractive for those reasons. Like you're not going to end up in this sort of black hole of not knowing. Exactly. And what we really need is to be expanding that. So we're working on building a center in Boston so we can be a bit of a hub. And then we want to spread this information out. Everybody can't fly to Boston. We need to make sure that we're educating the masses themselves, so they have agency over knowing when they have a good doctor or don't have a good doctor, and they know what information is good or is wrong. We also want to make sure that there are providers educated all over the world to be providing this good care. And that's why the same time we we launched the Female Athlete Program, we launched a Female Athlete Conference. And that really is for athletes, for coaches, for athletes' parents, for physicians, dietitians, therapists, you name it. We have all different tracks to educate people. Uh, It's international, it's virtual and in person, and the next conference is in June. But it really is to spread this information so that people are getting better care and training smarter and not necessarily harder. 
I know that the female athlete conference is is very big and you know very well attended and regarded. But are you getting buy-in from, you know, other cities to create something like you have in Boston? Well, it's so funny. Yes and no. I'd even say in Boston we're struggling because there is a there are a lot of politics here. You know, they're different hospitals and there's a lot of competition here and really what we want to do is bring people together we can share the wealth we shouldn't be working against each other so there are different cities that want to do this there are different hospitals that want to do this and i always caution people that we have to do it really right in one place to begin with my research collaborators are all over the world we're all working together and trying to build this one hub and then be able to spread it a bit more But what I caution people about are the people that say they're already doing this really well and they just hang the shingle up and say, oh, we have a female athlete program. But then you look deeper and they don't necessarily have all those components. They don't have the specialists that really know the athletes really well and are looking at it from a cardiology lens, a pulmonology lens, an orthopedic lens, a nutrition lens, a psych lens, on and on. Often people just know that it's a good marketing scheme to say, oh, we do this. We treat female athletes. Right. What are the experience of your patients? I mean, do you have, you know, sort of a general sense of how they feel when they come in and experience this? I mean, is it new for them? It varies, really. I mean, we don't have this state-of-the-art building yet. We're still fundraising to get the whole center. So we look a little bit scrappy still. We look better than we did 10 years ago. But people are sort of surprised. They think because I am on a lot of podcasts and we've published a lot of things and we do have the conference that it must just be some beautiful building. And we're, we're not there yet. So first, I think people are surprised, you know, especially when they fly in from all over the country to get the care. But then... Often people say, wow, I just didn't have this at home. Is this resource something that I can find in this part of the country or over here or there? And unfortunately, it's not there yet. So I think once they meet the providers, they're relieved that we're listening to their whole package of issues and that we're getting them the information that they need. So who's flying in? All sorts of different athletes. So we have Olympic level athletes. We have high school athletes. Often people reach out to us. We try to find them resources in their town or in their state, and they might not have the resources that they need to answer the questions that they have. So like I said, we do treat a lot of female athletes who lose their menstrual cycle, who might have multiple bone stress injuries, who might have an eating disorder. But we treat other athletes. Our whole sports division is treating athletes with ACL injuries, with shoulder issues, um, different medical complaints. So honestly, if they hear of us and they can't find what they need locally, people flown in from just about every state. You know, I'm super excited you're there, but I'm also sad that people have to fly in. Oh, I agree. Well, that's a whole <laughs> other conversation that we can have about the health system and telehealth. I think one of the one of the few great things about COVID, I say very few things, uh, is that people learn to be flexible in the medical system. And so for years, we've been saying a lot of the work that we do can be an in-person visit. And then some of those conversations later could be virtual. And so we'd like to do telehealth. And a lot of the health systems just weren't ready for that. And then in COVID, we really had to pivot. And so most of my work was telehealth throughout that. Our clinic was really, really busy. And all of a sudden, because they were a little bit lighter on those insurance restrictions and reimbursement rates, people were able to get a lot of care over state lines. I hope that that continues. You know, st- there are states that are pulling back on being as liberal about the, the cross-state licensing. But I hope as we move forward, we can streamline this a little bit better so that we have more platforms to do telehealth and we can expand licensure so that people don't need to, people like me, don't need to apply for a medical license in 50 states. Right, right. Interesting. I love hearing positives of the COVID. (laughs) Right. We got to keep a list. It's a short one. So let's talk a little bit about the WUSAI Performance Alliance and how does that fit in with what you're doing at the Female Athlete Program or does it? It absolutely does. So Clara Wu and Joseph Tsai are these really wonderful philanthropists. Their organization contacted me in 2020, just as our pandemic was getting started. And uh, basically they were wanting to build a 
a group that was really an alliance that was this collaborative group at different powerful institutions where people could focus on human performance and focus on healthy people mostly. So looking at athletes and thinking, could we discover different biological principles to really optimize human performance? And then when we find that information, can it then catalyze more innovation and and be able to trickle down sort of to the masses. So rather than discovering things based on the disease state, really studying sports and exercise and elite athletes to really see what happens in terms of tissue regeneration, in terms of um, molecular findings. And so some of that sounded really lofty, but the important part for me and where I came in was that I'm a physician and I'm studying women and I'm taking care of women. And so we realized in the process of all of this that way more of this work needed to be done in female athletes, in female mouse models. Um, So it's been neat to be sort of the female voice in this group to remind all of my collaborators, hey, we need to, no matter what cool thing you're discovering, make sure that we're thinking about the female hormonal milieu. Think about what is happening to women. We can't just keep studying the men and the male mice. One of the things that I hear quite a bit on the podcast, but also when I talk to people who are not guests that I meet about the podcast and what I'm doing is, you know, a lot of females still say that they're not athletes, in quotes, or Mm -hmm. they don't do sports. Like, how do you, since you talked about the research that you're doing sort of trickling down to sort of normal people, like, what are your thoughts about physical activity versus sports versus exercise? Mm -hmm. And how does the elite athlete relate to people who are not elite? Well, I think everybody can be an athlete and there are varied definitions. So there was a paper that actually made it easier for us in the research world. Some of my collaborators wrote this paper defining the level of athlete. So you go all the way from the most elite, you know, the gold medalist at the Olympics down to somebody who's maybe uh, a person who works out three times a week and plans to compete in a competition during the year. That's a pretty low bar. That's when you're starting to talk about us masters folks. So anybody who wants to be physically active is really somebody that we'll see. Um, I don't tend to treat people that I'm trying to motivate to move their body. The people that I treat are usually people that are maybe getting in trouble for over-exercising or not training appropriately. But I don't think it needs to really keep any population at bay when we're talking about treating an athlete. Really, we're talking about physical activity, which is another form of really healthcare. You know, encouraging people to be physically active is a really important thing for us all to be doing. And so I think it does tie in. I think when we see somebody who's at the elite level, we're learning about really good quality tissue and somebody who's really doing a lot of exercise on their body, and we see what effects that has. And so some things, even though we're saying, okay, we're not really studying a disease state, we know if you work out that much, it is certainly possible that you will get a tendon tear or a ligament tear. And so then how can my colleagues who are studying tissue regeneration focus on that person who's otherwise really healthy to help heal that tissue? Well, if we figure out some of those things, that's absolutely going to trickle down to the masses. And I think that's where it's exciting and it can apply to everybody. The other connection I like between the Wudsai Performance Alliance and the Female Athlete Program is this really collaborative as you said, interdisciplinary work that's happening in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we have six institutions that are the main leadership institutions here. So it's Boston Children's, it's Stanford, it's UCSD, Sulk, Oregon, and Kansas. And those were all picked for different reasons. These were institutions that were doing work in human performance and or had close ties to the donors. And we've identified people and they've identified people at each of those institutions that really can contribute to the alliance. So we are doing projects together, but we also have opportunities for agility grants. So picking people in other parts of the world who are doing really good work and giving them some extra funding and bringing them into some of our projects. So it's identifying the people that are interested in this space to help move things along faster. I bet that's really fun. It is. It's so fun because we can pick the people that we've heard of and 
pick up the phone or write him an email and say, hey, this looks like this would apply to you. I mean, I very much like doing research that is collaborative, that is interdisciplinary. And I was already doing some of that work with some of my friends in the UK and Australia and Canada. And this really just gave it a huge boost because now we had more funding to do more of the things that we wanted to do. And then we got to bring in more partners. Today's episode is sponsored by Endura Athletic. Endura Athletic is on a mission to create ethically sourced athletic apparel that empowers and supports athletic women's bodies. Rather than asking women to fit into clothes, Endura Athletic Apparel fits clothes to women, making space for powerful lats, broad shoulders, and strong legs. Through artfully designed, sweat-tested, and well-fitting apparel, women can tackle their workouts while feeling confident in their physique whatever shape it takes. Recently, I did my first run in a pair of Endura Stay Put shorts and loved them. They definitely stay put. I had none of that typical creeping up of shorts legs and then having to yank them down over and over throughout the run. The waistband is also really nice and not restrictive. You can order your own Stay Put shorts and find out more at EnduraAthletic.com or on this episode's show notes page. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. And now let's get back to Dr. Kate Ackerman, founder and director of the Wusai Female Athlete Program and the Female Athlete Conference. That conference is coming right up, both in person and virtually, So be sure to sign up at femaleathleteconference.com. One of your areas of specialty is REDS, and it's a common topic that we've touched on at the podcast. You know, here we are in 2023. Is the word getting out? What changes are you seeing in your practice and your patients? And I think you mentioned that that was the area that you're specializing in in rowing. Is that true? Did I miss something? Well, rowing, I'm kind of specializing in everything because um, I was a rower and I'm the head team doctor. So if they have a problem, we're talking about it. But specifically with REDS, our working group with the International Olympic Committee is coming out with a special edition of the British Journal of Sports Medicine this year. There are numerous papers that we've been working on for about two plus years. And one is a new Uh, guideline and explanation of REDS and where the research has been moving since our last update in 2018. There's also a new screening tool or, or clinical assessment tool. And it's really tricky when you're talking about an entity of low energy availability. So really having problematic low energy availability, you know, just skipping lunch one day isn't necessarily problematic low energy availability. But these people that are chronically cutting back or um, on very restrictive diets and are just not getting enough calories in for how much they're exercising can run into health problems and performance issues that are numerous and they don't always present in the same order. So we used to talk about the female athlete triad, which is a subset now of REDS, which is that combination of low energy availability, menstrual dysfunction, and poor bone health. We know that that still happens, but we also know that having low energy availability can affect reproductive function and bone health in men. And in both women and men, you can have cardiovascular effects, GI effects, all different systems. So we're learning more and more about that. And it makes it hard to screen for it. What we needed to do is really come up with an easier, useful clinical assessment tool so that coaches, physicians, athletic trainers, athletes themselves could identify some of the symptoms. And so 
Our research component of that is finding the markers, finding additional markers to demonstrate that someone is in a state of REDS, but also to make it easier for the non-researchers just to identify when they might be running into trouble and when they should get some medical attention. Do you think coaches, you know, not necessarily college coaches, although, yeah, let's let's include college coaches, but high school coaches and middle school coaches understand this issue and understand the, you know, like the possible dramatic effects and dramatic long-term effects of not having, not eating enough, basically? I guess what I'd say is not enough coaches understand this. I I continually am surprised at how few people know about this. You know, we're in a bit of an echo chamber because we're talking about this topic. You've had people on your podcast. I'm surrounded by providers and researchers who understand this topic, but I get emails literally daily from people saying, hey, I heard about this thing, or they describe the exact symptoms and they're saying, I don't know what's wrong with me, or I'll be asked to come speak to a team because all of a sudden this whole team is in a rut. So again, that was what really was the impetus for our conference 10 years ago was I was jumping around giving so many lectures to college programs, to high school programs. As I was building up more of our our practice and trying to get the word out about our program, I was really shocked that more people didn't know about it. So now we want to bring those people to Boston to the conference or have them sign up virtually. I think a lot of times the coaches don't think that this is something that is their concern, that that's something that needs to be handled by the medical people. But the environment that somebody's training in very much can drive people into low energy availability. So coaches need to look for it and they need to make sure that they're not inadvertently causing it. Yeah, oh, totally. And I think what I find interesting about REDS is that it can be non-intentional. I mean, people who think that they're eating well and I'll put myself into that category, you know, like we can still mess up. Absolutely. A lot of our ultra endurance athletes, I use the example of heavyweight male rowers. They eat a lot of food. And so if they're changing their training from two a days to a training camp where all of a sudden they're doing three or four sessions a day, they frequently can't get enough calories in for how much they're training. And often when people are exercising a lot, it actually decreases your appetite. So people have to think about fueling and make it part of their training. And a lot of people think, oh, I'll just go off of hunger cues, but those hunger cues may not be keeping up to what the athlete actually needs. Yeah, I I mean, I'm actually sort of a big, you know, advocate for intuitive eating, but it doesn't always work. And especially stress rises, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're not getting any of the cues. Exactly. And people who have had disordered eating in the past often will have a lack of proper hormonal signaling to give them that appetite that will help them to eat. But the exercise, again, like I said, can actually suppress that appetite. So the intuitive eating, when you're talking about an athlete who's burning a lot of calories, just isn't going to cut it very often. So what are the tools that you're using the athletes that come into you who are not eating enough that, you know, and and let's take an eating disorder out of it. So it's just Mm -hmm. simply they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So those are my easiest patients, the ones who come in and they just say, oh, I had no idea. I'll do whatever you recommend. I'll go see your dietician. I love those. Those are are simple. Um, Sometimes it really is surprising to people when we have them meet with our sports dietician who can do a one-hour intake to get a better sense of how somebody is eating. And then they can make those adjustments. And so I think a lot of people come to see us and they are pretty healthy people and they're athletic and they care about their bodies and their training. And so they feel that they're really knowledgeable about nutrition. And sometimes they're skeptical when I say that they should meet with our dietitian just to get a better sense if they're hitting all the marks. But pretty much our athletes who go see our dietitians learn something every time they go. And so they just need to have an open mind. So I just say, just try it once, just please meet once and see if you learn something and see if that's helpful because I think we're on this track. The other thing I can do to kind of prove the point sometimes is various labs might look a little bit off if somebody's under fueling. So when we check their thyroid, for example, T3, which is a form of thyroid hormone, may be suppressed. Uh, White blood cell count can be suppressed. Obviously, we know that different hormones can be suppressed. So again, sometimes I can see it or just getting the history from the athlete. I know that they're in a state of low energy availability, but I might need to prove it to them. If I do a DEXA, looking at a Um, body composition and bone density on a DEXA scan, that 
bone density might be low, their menstrual irregularity history might be tying into their low energy availability story, but then also they may have very little fat on their whole body. So they might have a lot of muscle and and bone, but then they have very little essential fat. So there's another tool that I can use to kind of prove the point. I think it's interesting, you know, like I, I have to check myself because I'm saying, oh, you know, like I know what I'm doing eating, but you know, like I have all these little things that you know, I wouldn't say disordered eating, but, you know, sometimes when I'm making my potions for drinking on the ride, I'll be like, oh, I'll just skip a little bit of that so I'll get fewer calories. Like there's all these like weird well, we semi-disordered eating. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think most athletes at some point, certainly female athletes, I think have have dabbled into areas of disordered eating, even if they haven't had eating disorders. We have to put it in the social context of, hey, we're women. People want us to look attractive in addition to being strong, in addition to all these other things. We're, we're just bombarded by magazines showing how we should look. And it's very hard to live in that environment and not take that in and, and wonder, oh, and you did fall off a little bit on your exercise because you got busy at work, you know, did that change your body a little? And now do you have to make up for it? I mean, we all have those, those voices in our head. And so you have to sometimes just pause and say, okay, am I fueling for my workout? Am I doing something that is healthy or am I doing something because of a body image issue? And I think that's where the dietitian and just looking at your training logs and, and talking to some professionals can help get you back on track. I think, too, there's the myth of the power-weight ratio. It just doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily make you faster if you're leaner. Yeah, and I think that's something we've tried to touch upon a little bit more with this, this group of upcoming papers. There are certainly times during a training cycle that an athlete may have to slim down uh, because it will help performance. But the question is the, the amount of slimming down, how long they're doing it, are they seeing performance gains? We don't want it to happen to the, to the point where they lose their menstrual cycle or their hormones are suppressed. So it would be naive to say, Anybody at any size can run really fast. We know that absolutely there is this weight ratio bit, but it has to be done in a very systematic way and done with professionals. And so we have people on these papers that have worked with elite athletes. I think Trent Stellingworth does a great job. He uses his wife as an example, Hillary Stellingworth, who is an Olympic runner, and how they have weight cycled her through different phases of her career, through pregnancy and out of pregnancy and back from pregnancy and competing. Um, there are ways to do it in a more thoughtful way rather than just making blanket statements about never worry about what you eat or never worry about your size because of course sometimes you will see benefits in, in running but you don't want to do it to the point that it's now causing detriments. And just looking at somebody on the outside and making a judgment about whether they have an eating disorder or whether they're too overweight for their sport is ridiculous because people perform at their peak at different sizes. And we have no idea what's going on with someone. We're just looking at them from the outside. Are you saying that some athletes are cutting back to lose weight, you know, like short period before performing, before competitions? I'm saying when we're talking about elite level athletes who are performing, that there might be times when they get slightly lighter. It's hard for them to do. I mean, you have to be pretty disciplined to be at just the right weight where you perform the best. And if you overdo it and you drop even lower, then your performance is going to tank. But if you, you know, eat liberally and then you're way over your set point where you perform best, you don't want to be at that weight at the Olympic final. So I'm talking about very gentle weight cycling, not huge extremes, but gentle weight cycling that's done in a professional context when you're an elite athlete. This is a total different conversation when I'm talking about adolescence. You know, we don't want our adolescents to be dropping weight as they're going through puberty and getting more and more into their sport. We want them to get skill acquisition, to have the benefits of teamwork, and then improve their performance over time without focusing much on body image. But when we're talking about an Olympic final, that's much different than a 16-year-old high school runner. And that's where I think people sometimes try to relate to the elite athlete without having all that other background experience of training and sports physiology and, and nutrition. And, and so they still need to learn how to be an athlete before they get to that stage. Well, the elite Olympic athletes are also, I mean, that's their job. <laughs> exactly. It's their job. And, and unfortunately, 
I mean, I'm very grateful for some of the elite athletes who've really come forward and talked about their eating disorder struggles. Uh, we need more of them to do it. I have a lot of patients that I can't talk publicly about because they are not admitting their problems, but they have Instagram accounts, they're on TikTok. And so when a young athlete is seeing that elite athlete who hasn't fallen off the cliff yet in terms of their performance, but is very, very thin and is not getting a period and has suffered stress fractures and they're not letting people know that publicly, it really sends a bad message because then people are trying to emulate the appearance of that athlete. And it's just not the right message we want to be sending. Right. I want to switch topics to older athletes. And yes. we are similar in age. And I know that you're starting to get so into So you're your... also 29. Happy That's right. Birthday. Exactly. <laughs> And uh, 29 is hard, right? No, so. <laughs> 29 was great. Who knew? 29 was We'd great. only known. <laughs> I know. I wish somebody had told me. <laughs> um, anyway, so what questions are you interested in finding about, you know, now that perimenopause is close, menopause is close? You know, oh, I'm gosh, it's so it's so fascinating because we grew up in a time where there were studies like the Women's Health Study and the Nurses Health Initiative. Um, or I always say that backwards. Women's Health Initiative, Nurses Health Study. But these were great studies that started at Brigham Women's Hospital at, in Boston, a Harvard teaching hospital, and then were multi-center. So I remember my mom being in those studies because she was a nurse and she was doing the branch of that study as a participant when we were living in Buffalo, where I grew up. And these studies were looking at different things like your diet. You know, do you remember when everybody was on fat-free diets? My mom was in that arm of it. You know, it's like, oh, through menopause, like try low fat and basically people gained weight. Or, hey, why don't we try a branch where people are on hormone replacement and a branch where they're not? And so in those studies that then in the early 2000s, everybody got nervous and said, oh, wait, we shouldn't be doing hormone replacement because that can be bad for women. And so everybody then was nervous about hormone replacement for years. And it turns out when they did subset papers off of that and looked at the subset of women that were in those projects, it was the women that had started hormone replacement about 10 years after they'd gone through menopause. So very different population. Those were the folks that were having problems if they were sort of hormonally naive for 10 years and then they were started on estrogen replacement. Those are the ones who had some cardiovascular side effects. But we didn't really learn anything about, well, what about the women who start on hormone replacement right as they're going through menopause? And so now there's this whole new wave of people saying, hey, there actually may not be a big issue if you don't have other health risks to go on hormone replacement. And can we study this? And can we see what happens in terms of performance or maintaining muscle mass? So I'd say the whole menopause society and OBGYNs have been sort of shifting the conversation in the last few years. And I'm really fascinated to see how that will translate for our female athletes, because we are just a population of people that really haven't been studied. So I'm excited to see what happens with HRT and with exercise and performance and body comp and mood and all sorts of different things that women experience through menopause. I don't want to get too personal, but have you started hot flashing? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, go for it's it. It's terrible. I'm, I'm an open book. Yeah. I mean, it's really terrible. Or it was for me. It was terrible. Well, it's what, what's been interesting to me is that my teammates and I, and I've talked about this before, you know, we're all 50-ish. And so all of a sudden, all of my friends and I started texting each other. And some are doctors, some are athletes, all these different people. And we're texting and say, well, what do you know? What did your doctor say? And it was this black box. And even as I have a lot of international friends, finding out what the recommendations were in different countries were slightly different than what we are hearing from our physicians. And so, of course, then my friends started looking to me and saying, well, Ackerman, you're the person who went to med school. You're the one who's actually treating female athletes. You better get on top of this. So there's certainly a personal desire to figure more of this out. And it's been interesting to talk to my friends who have all been experiencing different symptoms. Because sure, when we talk yeah. about menopause, there's this laundry list of things. And historically, women have been made to feel crazy because they talk about these different things, but they're not necessarily consistent from one woman to the other. You know, one person might be complaining of not sleeping well at night. Somebody else is talking about hot flashes. Somebody else is talking about vaginal dryness. Somebody else is talking about memory loss. It doesn't mean you have to have all the symptoms, but they are all related to menopause and this lack of estrogen. I also have found it interesting that I'm convinced that I'm still have some hormonal cycles. And yes. I'm, and it's just weird, you know, like I'm not menstruating and yet still I'm having PMS, basically. 
Um, well, I mean, our husbands have PMS. You know, everybody has <laughs> a little true. bit of PMS. But um, in general, the problem is, or not the problem, but the thing that makes it tricky is just because somebody, really the definition of menopause is 12 months without a menstrual cycle. But that doesn't mean that everything has completely shut down to zero levels. There are still right. some levels of estrogen and testosterone and progesterone that just might not be enough to build up an endometrial lining, maintain a lining, and then slough a lining. So that whole phase of menopause can drag on a little bit. That perimenopausal phase can be a little tricky. I have friends who've had 11 months without a period and then surprise. So it can drag on longer than you might think. Since there isn't that much research about older female athletes. I mean, what do you recommend for your friends? I mean, what are you doing yourself to sort of, I don't know, sort of keep track of this stuff or make it like come up with a solution of some kind? Yeah. So where we are right now from a research standpoint was just to look through the research that applied to women who are physically active. We talked about that definition earlier of athletes. So we use this tier two level, basically people who are training at least three times a week and with an intention of racing or competing at least once a year. So pretty low bar, but using that that level, we looked into studies and there were only about 24 papers addressing women and athletic performance or health who were defined as being that kind of level of activity. So what that taught us was, okay, this is kind of a boring systematic review because there's just not a lot out there. But then we've been bringing a group of people together, trying to get voices from different um, stakeholders, essentially. So OBGYNs and endocrinologists and athletes who are in menopause and finding out what is important to them so that we can define our research agenda. Just looking at some simple things to see what kind of hormonal changes happen with somebody who's on HRT or not with one type of exercise session. Then longitudinally following different groups and seeing what happens in terms of maintaining muscle or how much their performance maintains or falls off endurance-wise or strength-wise. That's, that's, we're just at the beginning of that. And that's going to take a little bit of time. Um, but when I talk about what do I recommend to my friends, I obviously want them to go to their doctors who are endocrinologists or menopause specialists or GYNs and get some information. And we're all kind of comparing notes. And I think everybody's making different decisions, which has been interesting. You know, I certainly have friends that are somewhat a little little bit more dubious about taking hormones or even the medical profession and they're trying their own herbals or their gummies and then I have other friends who are going and getting transdermal estrogen and oral progesterone so that they're taking a form of HRT uh, it's across the board and all I try to do is send people information and we're kind of all working it out together it's a little frustrating <laughs> it is. I mean, I think there are certainly organizations that are putting some information out there. Certainly the Menopause Society is a good place to start, which has evidence-based guidelines. And the guidelines in general say treat the symptoms. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's frustrating for all of us because A, there's not one answer that's obvious. B, there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable talking about this and they haven't gotten educated. So doctors who just say, I don't know, go see somebody else. And then we also have a lot of gaps in the literature. There's a lot of questions. And so we kind of feel like guinea pigs. Right, exactly. I mean, this goes back to one of your, I don't know, your missions is just increasing the amount of, of research being done with women. Mm -hmm. Has that been changing? Slowly. I mean, we're, we're certainly doing more research in women. I <laughs> right. think, you know, back to the Wusai Human Performance Alliance, this was... This was fun to be able to reach out to friends that I know while wow, you're doing great work and you're applying for grants and they're getting turned down. Well, guess what? Go for it. Here's a check. You know, you are part of the alliance and we want you to study this. This is your wheelhouse. So research is getting done now because we are trying to work together to do it. But the, the funding mechanisms, I say all the time, we can't rely on Clara Wu and Joseph Tsai to just be the funding mechanism for everything. We need to have more NIH funding. We need to have more Department of Defense funding. Um, there needs to be a lot of other funding sources, other philanthropists, and people need to be prioritizing this. I want to talk a little bit about money because I know you have your TED Talk and you talk about investment and you just talked about investment. Why is it so hard, or in your experience, why has it been so hard to find people who are willing to, people, companies who are willing to put in money into women's sports? Oh, 
I mean, I guess I could use my feminist answer, which is because a lot of these organizations are run by men. That's one issue. Now, to be fair, as I've said also in my TED Talk, I love men. I'm married to one. I have a dad. I have a brother. I have a son. I have a lot of male friends. And there are a lot of he's for she's out there. No question. I have great male collaborators and work colleagues. But I have found that as I've talked to different companies that I'm talking to, a board of men, or I'm talking to people that are really just in a marketing headspace and don't see how things are going to trickle down so that it's going to affect their bottom line if they invest in real projects. It's been pretty frustrating. So I feel like when I talk to women about this, they get it because they see the void. They've been looking for answers and they don't have them. Or there may be a medical issue that is especially pertinent to a female athlete. So stress fractures happen more frequently in women, again, because of those situations where you've got endurance athletes and they're not getting their menstrual cycle because they didn't eat enough. We already said that men do get stress fractures. Men do have low hormone levels. They might overtrain and not eat enough, but it's more common in women. So when we talk about sneaker companies or clothing companies and they're saying we support women, you know, they're designing products and they're getting models at different sizes now, which is good, but they aren't necessarily willing to put money behind research projects that will actually help support prevention of injuries in these women. And that part has been sort of surprising to me because I feel if a company actually said, we are actually going to invest in women and finding answers for them, we are supporting some of the top researchers in the world, we're putting our money where our mouth is, man, would I be out there advertising about what a great proactive company that is and how we should be buying their sports bras and their shoes. But I feel like there's still this marketing and research disconnect. It's interesting you mentioned that because my latest thing that I've been talking a lot about is that, you know, women control such a huge portion of, you know, spending at home. They also are getting wealthier and wealthier. And there are plenty of female athletes it's just weird to me that the marketing hasn't switched over. Like, why are we still catering to a male sports fan when there are plenty of female sports fan? And according to the data, they control more of the money. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. I have literally been in front of boards of some of these companies, and they've told me that they don't get it. That's a direct quote. We don't get it. We, we're doing great things for women. And then when I explain where that disconnect is and how the athletes and even their elite athletes that they might be sponsoring are asking questions and are wanting more and believe in this kind of investment, they've said they think they're doing enough. So something is lost in the message. It isn't a priority enough. Women are not being collective in it enough, I would say. Sure. I think that we really need to band together. I mean, that's why with our conference, this is a it's its own entity now. We've made it its own conference. It's its own LLC. It is now a place people can donate money. It's a place where people, if they buy tickets and they come or they watch it online, that money is all going to research. I just want to have this hub to have this interdisciplinary research, but also to be able to raise a pot of money to be able to have people do this all over so we can get these answers faster. So we welcome people to be exhibitors at that conference, but people need to be willing to work together. And I think there are a lot of different companies that want to own this space. And so they want to do it on their terms and they might not be bringing the right people to the table to do it well. Hmm. I'm still surprised also about the gap in participation for girls versus boys. In what sense? That there's the dropout rate? Well, there's the dropout rate. And um, it might have been on one of your talks that 40% of teen girls are not actively participating in sports. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly the Women's Sports Foundation has found there's far more opportunities still for yeah. boys, young men, than there are for girls and young women. Yeah, I think there's... Um... There are many factors to that. One of the things that we see during adolescence that we're a branch of our group is exploring is this athlete resilience and how we support an athlete through an injury. And certainly males get injured as well. But when we talk about female athletes, one of the issues is the ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament in the knee. And women who are doing the same sport as men have a higher rate of ACL injury. An ACL injury could take you out for a year. And so if you have a female athlete who tears her ACL, 
Immediately, she's taken off her team. She's not able to participate. So she's losing her athlete identity. She needs to have surgery. She's started into physical therapy. So six months to a year maybe before she's back to that sport. And I've seen a lot of athletes just say that's too hard or they don't get all that support. In our program, we make sure that they're getting psychological support, that they have access to sports nutrition, that they are doing a really good rehab program but not everybody has that. And so they might just be told, oh, you're done or you're out for the season. And the coach may have somebody else who's a superstar and not be not keep them involved and engaged in the team. So I think there are these episodes of depression, of identity loss, where people pivot and, and turn to something else. And it's such a shame because we know that they can come back. But we need to figure out ways to keep them involved, keep them feeling like they're part of something so that they return. I mean, the other aspect of that is not only does that happen more often to women, but when we talk about resources at schools, we still see schools where the men's football team is getting the athletic trainer and they're getting the better field and the women can practice at a different time uh, on a different field after lacrosse or something. So if we're not giving them the same resources and we're affecting their schedule and they're not getting the best coaches and then we're not giving those same equitable opportunities, of course, people are going to drop out. And this always makes me sad because, you know, obviously this is a sports podcast, but, you know, sports is not just sports. It has impact for the career. It has impact for long-term health. Forget about athletics or sports. It's good for health to keep moving. And so it's always, you know, like the repercussions are always much greater than just you're not on the team anymore. Absolutely. I mean, we know that it helps with self-esteem. Girls and women have better grades in general if they were athletes. You know, it's so funny. When we were growing up, people used to talk about the quote-unquote dumb jock. Well, it turns out the people that were in sports who really were athletic learned discipline, learned how to manage a schedule, were able to focus better. So in general, female athletes are doing better than their non-athletic counterparts when you talk about graduation rates. And then these are the same women that are more likely to end up in the C-suite. It, it, it really... People who get through sports and get through that um, hard environment, which does require some nurturing, but also requires you to be tough and resilient um, and to accept and push through and, and learn how to manage wins and losses. I think that just sets you up for life and how to cope and do well in your profession as well. To wrap up, do you have any recommendations for athletes who are not in Boston, female athletes who are not in Boston, you know, maybe things that they can do for themselves relatively easily? Well, obviously, I'm going to pitch our conference again, because um, they can certainly watch that with our virtual approach. I think there are different things that we're trying to develop that are already out there. So as part of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Women's Health Task Force, we are going to be working with the English Institute of Sport and the Australian Institute of Sport on more handouts and more virtual learning. Uh, some of that is posted on our website, thefemaleathleteconference.com. Then you can also get over to the Australian Institute of Sport Female Athlete Project that they have, which is really giving a lot more tools about different sports topics. People can look in their area and see if there are people that are, are women-minded in our female uh, sports clinics and see if there is a different approach. I think we have to shop around and see what's out there. but. The nice thing about our conference, my favorite part actually, is just all the networking. The last time we did it was during the pandemic, and so the whole thing was virtual. It was the first time it was virtual. We actually did it online out of my house, which is interesting. <laughs> and we had one of my favorite attendees was in India, and it was the middle of the night, and we had these virtual networking platforms, and she participated in everything. And it was so cool just to see that we could bring people together from all over the world to find people that wanted to meet with other experts or other groups. And since that, that event, I've seen people connect and develop their own little niches or start to build their own little programs. That's exactly what we want to happen. You know, if I don't see another patient, but there are 50 providers doing what I'm doing, I would be thrilled. It's not that we need it to all be in one spot, but we do need a hub so that we can make sure it's done really well. And that's what we've been trying to develop and really spread the awareness so that people get loud and people say, yes, there needs to be investment. Who is the audience for the conference? 
Uh, we Well, we have tracks for different people. So okay. it's athletes, it's coaches, it's physicians, it's nurses, it's psychologists, researchers, dietitians. Um, so if you go to the website, you can see that there are different tracks, different pricing for different people. If anyone has any question or is wondering about scholarships, I think we have a few of those left. We really want to make it accessible. Obviously, this is a labor of love. We have this volunteer committee of over 30 people, and it's it's our favorite time of the year. We do it every other year so we don't lose our minds because it's a lot of work, <laughs> yeah. um, but it's a, it's a fun event. One area of athletes that I am finding struggle to continue to participate in sports are sort of that post-collegiate or early family woman. Mm -hmm. Yes. What's your experience with that? Well, so I was at the ESPNW summit a couple years ago and a woman came up to me who was bringing up that topic and she really reminded me about what happened to so many of my friends. I was really lucky that I did not peak athletically in college. Um, I was a late bloomer to begin with, so I really wanted to see what I could do after college. So I went straight into more elite training. But most of my friends who were varsity athletes finished college and then started the workforce. And I think even if you're not an athlete, that first year out of college is really hard. You're just, it's a total adjustment to being an adult. And you don't really want to be a full adult yet because for most of us, college was pretty fun. So I think there's this getting your, your feet under you of, okay, well, now I don't have this athlete identity and I'm supposed to be working at least 40 hours a week and I'm not with my teammates anymore. Um, so there can be this real sense of loss and then finding what is the next thing and then understanding, okay, you may not be competing at an elite level. You may not be competing like you were in college, but there might be something else for you. There might be a new group for you to be working with or you might become a master's athlete. But that transition, this woman at this conference really kind of reminded me about what so many of my friends went through. And they sort of are going through an earlier thing than the elite athletes get later on. You know, we hear about this all the time with elite athletes stopping after the Olympics, like what's next? Well, many more people are going through that experience after college. So I think we need to find ways for people to stay physically active, remind themselves why they were doing it, to prioritize it, not let all the other things in life get in the way. Obviously, it's easier said than done. We all fall off the wagon. I do all the time when I get busy. Um, but to realize that it's there for you again, like you can come back to it. And it's never perfect. I remember I used to be kind of nervous about the idea of someday I would be pregnant and have kids and I wouldn't have time to work out as much. Like I knew I wanted kids, but it sort of scared me to think, uh-oh, like I won't get to work out as much. So there's this one nice thing that happens when you have kids where you kind of forgive yourself for that because the kids are so awesome. But you also have to figure out and get creative about how you can incorporate them into it. You can go running with the stroller. There are different exercises that you can still be doing. You might just be doing something much different than what it looked like. I'm giving you a really long answer, but I'm just That's thinking cool. about my own experience. <laughs> I had three kids and I had three very different pregnancies. My first child, I was able to exercise all the way through and was literally exercising to try to get her out of my body. So I'm like, you're overdue. Let's come on. Let's do some more biking. Come on. Uh, the second one, I had some complications. So they kept threatening bed rest and I was banned from exercising. And then the third one, I was just, you know, older and it was more like the first pregnancy, but I had like SI pain and stuff. So I just had to modify the kind of exercise I was doing. But with all of them, because I think I was an older mom and I'm a physician, I was able to be just a little bit more forgiving about it to say to myself, all right, this might not have looked the way I had planned, but I'll be able to bounce back. I know that I can because we have the resources to go to PT, to you know, find the time to go running with the kids and go to the physical therapist and all that stuff. So I just want to encourage women to realize it's a temporary state when they're pregnant. And we know that women can be physically active during pregnancy if they don't have complications. And we have elite athletes proving that to us. And postpartum, people can get it back and they just need to stay hopeful because the sports are not going away. Exercise is not going away. It's always there for us in some capacity. Thank you for that. Really amazing long answer. I love it. And it also addressed, you know, like why it is so different for women and for men in that age bracket. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so many things that 
can change in our bodies. You know, our bodies are not the same during and post-pregnancy as pre-pregnancy. And instead of feeling bad about it, we just need to accept it and get the resources to be able to do the things that we love to do again. You know, we're talking about things that were so taboo before, like pelvic PT. Pelvic PT can be immensely helpful. There's so many changes that happen internally with pregnancy and things stretching out and moving around and Often women need pelvic PT after pregnancy. So even during pregnancy sometimes. So these things can help people get back to the stuff that they love. And we need to give them the resources to know where to find those specialists. Well, thank you very much. I, I find all the work that you're doing really exciting. And the programs that you're developing is really exciting. Just sort of this new attitude that there are the resources available for everybody. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And I'm excited to just have more people go into this field and be the resources. So thanks for having me to talk about it. Thank you, Kate, for making time to be on Hear Her Sports. It was an honor to have you on the show. I love talking to doctors, scientists, and researchers focused on females, and in particular, female athletes. And once again, thank you to Heidi Skolnick for connecting me with another fabulous women in sport. Heidi is a sports nutritionist I met in New York City way back in the day when she talked to me about the dangers of Red S, which was then called the Female Athlete Triad. Heidi has been a guest on the show. I encourage you to listen to that. I hope you learned something today listening to my conversation with Kate. Keep spreading awareness about female athletes and the importance of research focused on them. I'd love to hear what you think. Reach me at elizabeth at hearhersports.com or connect through socials at hearhersports. There's also a contact page on the website. Take a look at Kate's show notes page at hearhersports.com for more about Kate's work, the Female Athlete Conference, and links to other things mentioned in the episode, including links to the Menopause Society and the Australian Institute of Sports Female Performance and Health Initiative. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. And until next time, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.